This is the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm J.D. Layton. I'm Emily Maschak. Only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Hello and welcome to the Rocky Mountain Review, your news talk show. I am J.D. Layton, one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU, and I am joined in studio by the other news director. Emily Mossack. As well as our very own local reporter. Hello, Katie Otter. I forgot to turn on your mic, Katie. Oh, say it again. It's me, Katie Otter. There we go. <laughs> right here, Katie. We also have a special guest here today, Camille Dungy, American poet and CSU professor. And you had one of your poems published in the New York Times, correct? That is truth. That is so exciting. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. So the poem was called Still Life, correct? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it, the inspiration behind it? And you can read it if you like as well. <laughs> I can read it. Why don't I read it, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. Great, thank you. That sounds lovely. Still life. Still life with insure vials of fentanyl, oxycodone, water. Still life with crackers, maybe, hopefully, he will keep down. Still life with tossed sheets and yogurt cup. Still life with sports illustrated piles in the bathroom, guest room, on the living room floor, on the dining room table, in recycle bins waiting near the door. Still life with the younger brother assessing how to dispose the hoardings of the one man left who shares his face. Still life with hanging tension and sadness, failed ambition, medicated dreams. Still life with phlegm and corruption, with waste, with fan get well cards, appointment reminders, hospital garage parking receipts. Still life with the mantle clock, one birthday's present, still ticking and ticking and ticking away. Mm. So that's the poem. And I think you can hear from it that it's about the just the feeling and the experience of sitting with a loved one as they pass, right, in hospice and after that passing, and the kinds of things that we collect as emblems of the memory of watching that transition experience that carry so much weight with them after we lose the person to whom they're connected. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific person that inspired that poem for There you? was. Would you like to talk about it? No. Is that okay? No, that, no worries. <laughs> no, but what I will say, I mean, what's, I think what's less important is who it is specifically than that so many of us have a who specifically. And that's mm-hmm. part of why I don't name the name of my individual person. I don't like taking away the ways that my readers can connect and, right. and put their own names in that place. Shifting gears a little bit, what sort of got you into poetry? What sort of inspired you to use poetry as a medium to express yourself? 
I think it's the same sense of this desire to connect, to communicate, to show shared experience and shared uh, uh, views of the world, um, that the things that I see and do and touch and, and that uh, connect with me may also align with so many other people out there. And poetry is a means through which we can build that bridge. Mm-hmm. Do you get feedback from people who have read your poems? I do get feedback. And when you publish in some places as widely distributed as the New York Times, I got all kinds of emails that were really quite moving sometimes. And it was fascinating to me how many people said, I, we had those parking receipts, too, and it was so hard to throw them away. Or our magazines were people magazines instead of Sports Illustrated or something, that there were details in the poems that really directly aligned with so many other people's experiences. So it was really gratifying to have been able to articulate mm-hmm. this shared. So still life sort of draws from your experience with uh, a loved one passing uh, do you usually refer to people when it comes to inspiring your poems, or is it just anything? To write poetry as um, evocatively as I want to, there has to be something real at the root of it. And so I have written fictional accounts. Um, I have an entire book that's set in the 19th century. It's not based on real people. It's an aggregate of historical experiences. Mm -hmm. But even then, when you're writing fiction, you have to come to something true at at its core. And so, yes, the lived experiences of those around me and my own life is, is always at the root of my inspiration. Do you tend to write poetry just when the inspiration strikes you, or do you have times where you're like, I'm going to sit down and write a poem today? Poetry is a practice. Mm -hmm. And so I have a very regular practice of reading, writing, drafting, thinking. That practice does not always come to fruition. You do not always have a really great poem at the end of that work, but you are significantly less likely to have a good poem at the end of the work if you don't do the work. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, what poets do you sort of look up to and try and emulate? Maybe not emulate, but channel, I suppose. Mm-hmm. This ends up always being the hardest question for me because as a professor of creative writing and poetry, I read all the time. I'm a poetry editor of a national magazine, Ten House Magazine, so I'm reading constantly um, for that job. All I do really is read. And so there are so many contemporary poets doing phenomenal work out there right now. Tonight at CSU, the poet Khadijah Queen is reading at Laurie Student Center, and I just adore her work, and I love her vision. And so being surrounded by peers who are writing a world in a direct and honest and open, beautiful way, that just makes me so excited. Going back to being an editor, so do you actually edit other people's poems that they give to you? I do do that sometimes. One of the things that being an editor means is kind of reading things that come in as submissions and saying yes or no. Uh, And that is usually pretty cut and dry. The the yeses are very clear and the noes are very clear. But there's an occasional almost. Mm -hmm. And with those almost, I prefer rather than just saying no, as some other 
gatekeepers might, I prefer to reach out to that poet and say, this is an almost, and here are some of the things that are catching and stopping this from being a yes. Would you be interested in working with me on re- thinking this and mm -hmm. usually they will say yes and usually we get that poem to a yes yeah what are kind of those catches and stops since poetry is so personal i feel like it would be hard to critique someone a little bit in that way right there maybe i can think i can say five things that you could do if you're writing and you're trying to think is this poem working one of the things that you can do is ask yourself is the poem ending where it really ends or do you need to stop a little bit earlier. The poem that I read for you today originally had maybe two more lines, and I just realized that stopping with that mantle clock was a descriptive and exciting metaphor for what was going on. Mm -hmm. The title is often very useful. The poem that I read for you today had a much longer title. I think the original title actually encapsulated what became the first line also. And I realized that still life was, again, much more evocative. But sometimes we don't see our poems as clearly as directly. Just sometimes the form, how it looks on the page, we can pay attention to that. I said five things, but those are three pretty easy to look at places that you can think of when you're looking to revise poems. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as an editor and a teacher uh, here at CSU, what sort of things would you uh, advise young poets on? I think that we often believe that in order to write poetry, you have to go out and live some sort of crazy life and do all <laughs> kinds of crazy things. And that is not true. <laughs> um, for one thing, the world is full of really wonderful inspiration and what we need to do is learn how to attune ourselves to pay attention to that and um, whether or not you are living an exciting life doesn't mean that the world doesn't have exciting things to draw from and so I would say take care of yourself take care of your body take care of your life but also take care of your eyes and your attention and see where you focus it mm -hmm. I like that I like that a lot kind of along in that vein do you think poetry has to be Technical, I remember being in high school and my teachers were always talking about pentameter and meter and all these things. Do you ascribe to that or can, do you have a little more fluidity in that reign? I'm gonna say yes and no. Mm -hmm. I, it, poetry, again, it's a practice. There are, there are things about it that make it better because we have centuries of craft to draw on and knowing about those tools makes you a better poet. But one of the things that knowing about those tools teaches you is how frequently people uh, choose to use other tools or break the rules or um, shift the boundaries and the margins and that we also need to know how to do that, how to kind of move past what the our elders have done and create something new. So you mentioned you've read a lot of, uh, you, you read a lot of contemporary poets. Um, what types of ways do you think they sort of push that, that limit, those parameters that our elders did out of curiosity? Well, we have, we have desktop publishing now, which I don't even think is called desktop publishing anymore, but just the access to computers and what you can do with your typography and on the page and how you can lay things out and um, how you can overlay language and make poetry a visual object 
in addition to being an uh, something that we hear and something that we um, read with our eyes, it can be just really really like visual art. So that's one thing that I'm really seeing a lot of is poets writing their poems in InDesign or some other kind of program um, to that's not just a word program. Um, another thing that is happening right now is that poets are speaking directly to contemporary political questions. And so frequently those contemporary political questions have to do with um, uh, questions of culture and identity that are newly at the in the popular culture forefront, right? So trans rights have always been an issue for trans people and trans people's allies, but they probably haven't been front page news in the way that they have been in the last year and definitely this last week. And so what we're seeing is poets speaking directly to questions like that, right? Um, and it's not that poets haven't always been addressing political questions, it's what the political questions are that shift and change. Mm -hmm. Kind of along with touching on culture points, I read in a previous interview when I was looking for your New York Times article that you said you wanted to see more people of color in poetry. Yes. Can you elaborate a little more about that and your feelings behind that? Right. And that um, that interview was probably speaking directly to, to an anthology that I published called Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time that I published that collection, it was the only collection of African-American nature writing oh, wow. um, available. And so that seemed like a pretty blatant omission mm -hmm. in the conversation. And uh, it is not really an omission that can can acceptably and easily be made anymore. I think there's significantly more uh, writers of color being seen as nature writers. And so it's a matter of what, what we publish, what we talk about, what we write, what we put forward changes who who we see in the world and how we see them navigating in the world. It's really important. It changes our perception of what the world can be. Awesome. Do you have any else you would like to add or other poems that you would like to read while you're here? Um, I simply want to say that we talk so frequently um, about how poetry is just something that um, we only talk about in school, that it is um, not necessarily something in our daily lives, but I think that more and more the ways that poetry shares truth and di speaks directly to our cultural values and our needs um, with beautiful evocative language is exactly what so many of us need mm -hmm. now, right? Um, so I guess um, it's just my joy always to be a representative for the power and importance of poetry. That's very awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Camille. We really appreciate it. For everyone listening, that was Camille Dungy, American poet and CSU professor who published her poem Still Life in the New York Times. And if you would like to read it, you can find it on the New York Times website. And thank you again so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. Of course. It was great. All right. We will be taking a quick break before we dive into our local news stories. So keep that dial locked only here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. 
and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm J.D. Layden, and I am joined in studio by... Emily Masha. The other news director, as yes. well as our very own local reporter. Katie Otter. I, I don't know what you guys thought about that poetry, but I thought it was awesome. It's always nice to hear refreshing poetry. I, I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for it. Yes, that was great, especially to hear Camille Dungy, the CSU professor and poet who we had on a few minutes ago, read her own poem with her own expression and how she really meant to say it. It was very powerful. Yeah, no, that it, it's very, there's something powerful about hearing the poetry from the, the mouth of the poet. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. But on that note, we are going to dive right into local news. Colorado State University has set extremely sensitive microphones in the Ross Ice Shelf to study the seismic microvibrations that constant wind creates in the ice, reports the CSU External Relations staff. What this does for CSU scientists is help study the structure and movements of the Ross Ice Shelf. CSU has had these microphones in place from early 2014 and noticed something eerie about them, an almost constant sound coming from the vibrations of the windswept ice. The ice even seems to change pitches as the weather changes. Julian Chaput, a geo geophysicist and mathematician who worked on the project, stated, It's kind of like you're blowing a flute constantly on the ice shelf. And we actually have a little snippet of what that sounds like. And uh, let me tell you what, it is pretty strange. It's so weird. I, if you hadn't told me this was the ice, I would not have believed you. It reminds me of those throat singers. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. Like the, the Mongolian, like, throat yodel. Yes, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, I don't know about y'all, but I'm definitely playing this at my next Halloween party. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's kind of spooky. It's like some spooky feedback. It's like, it's something I'd expect to hear in, like, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It does. It sounds like a weird alien. I know. This is in, was it in Antarctica? Yes, I believe so. Um, it is, it's the Ross Ice, ice Sheaf. Ice Shelf. Ha, 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 ha. Talking is hard. <laughs> I know. It's, it's been a, it's been a day, but I'm going to go ahead and hand the, uh, the stories off to Katie. Authorities have confirmed one dead and two injured in a multi-townhome fire in West Fort Collins on Wednesday morning, reports the Coloradoan. Pooter Fire Authority responded to a fire at 3219 Sumac Street at 6 a.m. Wednesday morning. The fire burned multiple structures. PFA confirmed one death and stayed at the location overnight. This death, this death was the first fire-related death in Larimer County this year. Three people died in relation to fires in Larimer in 2017, two in October specifically. Do we know what caused the fire? Uh, I don't. I don't. All right. Well, we'll be sure to keep you updated as that story develops. Larimer County has had about $10 million more in marijuana sales through August, according to the Coloradoan. Considering the full year so far, marijuana has made $46.6 million in sales for Larimer County and over $1 billion throughout Colorado. Since last year, the concentrate marijuana sales have increased 95%, while the edible sales have increased 13.8%. The medical marijuana sales have decreased 9% this year, compared to 2017. Larimer County produced almost 6,000 pounds of usable marijuana during the first half of this year. 
while El Paso, Boulder, and Denver have been dominating Colorado's commercial marijuana supply by growing 80% of Colorado's cannabis plants. So far, Colorado has gained $200 million of state revenue from marijuana sales. That's a lot of pot money. That is a lot of pot money. I definitely should have said that's a lot of money in the pot, but it's too late for <laughs> oh, that. Oh, that would have been oh, good. Oh, you missed uh, it. Would have been good. Uh. All right. Weld County is just left of Larimer and is having a, quote, epidemic of people not wearing their seatbelts, according to the Greeley Tribune. Officers cannot pull people over just for not having a seatbelt on since this is a secondary offense, which makes enforcing the safety law difficult. Officer Hayes of of Weld County explains that a change in speed rather than just fast driving is what typically causes injuries, which is why seatbelts are important. They can slow your body's momentum during a crash and potentially save your life. There's not any clear reason as to why Weld County is having such a large problem with seatbelts, but Hayes says people typically complain to him that they were either on a short drive, forgot to put it on, or were uncomfortable with it on. 484 people have died on Colorado roads this year, and northeastern Colorado is the most dangerous area for driving. Wow. Put your seatbelts on, people. Yeah, definitely. PSA from the uh, Rocky Mountain Review is uh, buckle up. It's good for you. Buckle up for it safety. It is important. I don't even, it'd be hard to forget to put it on. Like, yeah. I don't even know I have it on. It's like automatic pilot when I get in my car. Right. Definitely. I feel like it'd take me more effort to untrain myself to unclick my seatbelt. You know, like. I know. And what about the beeping that your car yeah, does when you don't? It's, it's, it's so, so annoying. annoying. It's annoying. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that is a cop-out excuse that it is. you can't forget. Definitely, definitely. I, I remember in like fourth grade when it was cool to not wear a seatbelt, and I'd always try to see if I could not put it on before my mom noticed. <laughs> or was that just me? No, that's... I, I think that was just, just you, Emily. You. Ah, well, crap. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you guys know, but it happens to be voting season, and at this time of the year, it's very, very common for there to be rallies. And Bernie Sanders happened to come here last night. Maybe you guys didn't make the, get the chance to go, but lo and behold, our very own Raven Color has an update on that. So stay tuned here on 90.5 with more information on that. Sexism is wrong, and these were people who sometimes gave their lives for justice. People who were lynched for justice, women who died in the fight for women's rights, people who died in the fight for gay rights. Our message to Trump is a very profound message. This is a great nation, not because we have a $700 billion military budget. We are a great nation, not because we have more millionaires and billionaires than any other country. We are a great nation because we have led the world in the fight to understand that we are a common humanity, that all of us, whether we are black or white, whether we are gay or straight, male or female, whether we are Christian, Muslim or Jewish or whatever we are, all of us want a good life for our children. We want to be able to drink clean water and breathe clean air. And we say to Donald Trump, this country has suffered for too many years, seeing one group of people being put upon by another group of people. Mr. Trump, we have suffered with discrimination for 200 years. 
but we are not going backwards, we are going forward. Early polling centers, including one in the Lori Student Center, opened on Monday and will be open for ballot drop-off, voter registration, and voting until Election Day on November 6th. A number of polling locations will also be open on Election Day only. This has been Raven Color reporting for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am J.D. Layden, and... I'm joined in studio by Emily Moshak. Hello. The other news director, as well as our very own local reporter, Katie Otter. Hello, hello. And that was a update or an, and a breakdown of Bernie Sanders' rally. But we actually have a special guest on the line, Etienne Zafarge, entrepreneur, author of Untangling USA, and... Former business executive. Hello, Etienne. Hello, JD and Emily. How are you? We are good. good. How are you? Fine, thank you. It was great to hear Bernie Sanders uh, <laughs> waiting for the call. Yeah, right. yeah. I know. A motivating speaker. Definitely, yes. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Now, Etienne, can you give us and our listeners who might not be familiar with it a breakdown of the IPCC's latest climate report and what it actually means? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, it's actually IPCC, it's a bit of a mouthful. It stands for the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a months long effort led by scientists worldwide. But the conclusions are fairly simple. The conclusion is a call to arm that if we want to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius, about 3 Fahrenheit, uh, above pre-industrial age emissions. Uh, a temperature increase, most scientists, and I mean 95%, agree that beyond which we're going to create a series of climate catastrophes that are going to make uh, our Earth very difficult to manage. So if we want to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to get on with a program of renewable, sustainable energy and energy conservation like yesterday. Uh, this should be nothing new. Uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius is also what the Paris Agreement of 2015 uh, said could happen. Uh, these are the bad news. Basically, uh, the IPCC is telling us we are getting to be against the wall, and it's time to do it. In terms of specific recommendations, uh, that's where the good news starts. The good news is that nothing the UN panel suggests is technically impossible, quite to the contrary. The challenges are political, foremost here in the United States. In other words, from a technological standpoint, we can do it. But in many places, foremost in the US of A, it is politically painful. The type of things that are required are pretty simple. It's combination of electrification through renewable sources, solar, wind, uh, you know, decentralized electrification, having solar panels in your home, batteries to 
a charge so that you can use electricity at night when the sun is no longer shining. Uh, hydrogen, sustainable bio-based uh, feedstocks, agriculture, a lot of efficiency improvements. Uh, allow me to quote here uh, the, form, the world's number one expert on efficiency improvements, who is from Colorado, Emory Lovett of the Rocky Mountain Institute. And the number of changes is urban infrastructure, again, to minimize transportation, energy cost, and so forth, and a lot of storage. Again, the technology exists. One key recommendation of that IPCC panel to stimulate uh, the enactment of these technologies, these renewable technologies, is the establishment of a global carbon tax, global one, not just country XYZ, global tax, everybody pays the same price, they recommend to set it above $135 per ton of CO2. Uh, incidentally, what was fascinating is uh, the day after that uh, United Nations climate change report came up, which was um, Sunday, October 7th, the following Monday, October 8th, uh, the Nobel Prize in Economic Science was awarded to NYU Professor Paul Romer and Yale Professor William Nordhaus. And Nordhaus uh, had a lot of work on basically the effectiveness of a carbon tax. I mean, I quote him to say, the most efficient remedy for the problems caused by greenhouse gas emissions would be a global scheme of carbon taxes that are uniformly imposed on all countries. Here in this country, we have had bipartisan support uh, from established state people, uh, senators, former cabinet members, uh, to establish carbon tax, even on the Republican side. There was a series of op-eds in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal uh, advocating for a carbon tax. They were signed by no less than former Secretary of State George Shultz, former Secretary of State and Treasury Jim Baker. Shultz also was a former Secretary of Treasury, and former Secretary of Treasury Hank Paulson. So there are a lot of sage voices out there that say we have to start pricing pollution, mm -hmm. and we have to start acting on it. The technology is there. Already, despite all the obstacles we have in this country, in California, uh, we're pretty close to 30% of all electricity being produced by renewables. And, uh, you know, our governor, Jerry Brown, in September, uh, signed legislation uh, that will mandate all, 100% of all electricity produced in California to be 100% renewable by 2045, so no carbon in it. And California, I mean, it's not small. It's the world's largest economy. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what it is. Uh, this uh, IPCC report uh, is a call to arms, a wake-up call. Now, you, you mentioned that one of the recommendations that the IPCC recommends is uh, is a carbon tax. Uh, I've heard uh, words of, of, of cap-and-trade systems sort of uh, yielding the same type of effect, but maybe for our listeners who aren't necessarily as well-versed in what exactly that does, could you, could you explain that? Yes, uh, and actually uh, it's a topic I covered 
exactly along the lines of your question in my book, uh, Untangling uh, the USA, uh, The Cost of Complexity. A carbon tax is very simple. It's basically uh, you are pay a tax on everything that uh, took carbon to produce. So uh, you can think uh, a subset of a carbon tax would be a gasoline tax. So that's very simple. Uh, incidentally, uh, in Europe, uh, there is a lot more tax on the gasoline than we have here in this country uh, because they pay about two and a half times what we pay at the pump, and the difference is entirely gasoline tax. Uh, the net result is they don't have cafe standards. They don't have this complex mosaic of regulation that say a Ford F-150 has such pick a footprint for cafe standards, different than the Toyota Camry, different than the uh, a Ford Exhibition. You know, uh, they just price gasoline high at what it costs, and the result is then they let the market decide, and of course people naturally gravitate towards higher mileage vehicles. Um, so a carbon tax is very simple, very straightforward, and it achieves the trifecta of, uh, one, protecting our planet and the environment, two, helping the economy, because it raises a lot of money at a time where we have a lot of budget deficits in this country, and three, also in some ways pricing or entanglement in uh, foreign wars and trouble spots like the Middle East, which we've always, throughout our history, have done in the name of King Oil. Now, cap-and-trade is much more complicated. Cap-and-trade, if you want, the carbon tax is an absolute. You know, it's, you produce so much carbon, you pay so much per ton of carbon produced. Uh, cap-and-trade is uh, more incremental. Basically, whoever sets it up, and you have examples of it in California, and ours were renewed until 2030 in Europe. So you decide a certain level above which uh, there's going to be a price for the incremental carbon produced. It doesn't stop there. It gets more complicated. So people who produce, if you want, more uh, pollution uh, than the threshold entails are going to be able to trade pollution permits they call carbon permits, with other entities that don't pollute at all. And so there will be a market established uh, in basically uh, pollution emissions, and people will trade. The idea is uh, it will cost money for the polluters to pay for these permits, and that should discourage them from polluting. It's complex to establish. Uh, complexity is the friends of traders, consultants, so it's supported by a lot of people who benefit from the establishment of yet more one complex marketplace. Um, the big problem is where you set the base level. And so far uh, in Europe, it's been quite bad because their first attempt uh, placed the level of early permits at such high price. And they also gave a lot of permits to launch the system. So they gave free permits to steel producers, to coal-fired power plants. And in England in particular, I think the first year they tried that, coal-fired power plants ended up receiving money. Uh, in California, it's been better implemented, but there are not, quite, not a few voices that, uh, among them the Sierra Club, they say that, you know, they rode a number of other energy-saving and environmental-saving initiatives we took, 
and the system is just too complicated to be very effective. And again, in California, when the system was launched, it was uh, an epic battle. Uh, it was Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger proposed it. Uh, immediately, the Koch brothers from Oklahoma, out of state, and their fossil fuel interest and friend challenged the law on the ballot, and it was an epic ballot battle. On one hand, the Koch brothers and fossil fuel interests from out of state. On the other hand, a well-known Democrat environmentalist named Tom Steyer associated with former Secretary of State and Treasury, Schultz. And Schultz and, and Steyer won big. I mean, the thing passed like 60-40. But they need to spend money uh, to it. And so we've had cap-and-trade since then, about 2008. Uh, but again, I, I personally much prefer the common tax because it's a much simpler system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it most definitely is. It definitely just uh, applies that cost per ton of carbon directly there. So... Seeing as how we're a, a college radio station, uh, Fort Collins is a relatively large college town. It has a big emphasis on that. What are some types of things that uh, you know us college students can type do to either push for or engage in, in activities to sort of fight climate change? Well, number one, engage. Participate in debates. Join local chapters of NGOs uh, that uh, basically address climate change. Uh, learn. You know, as I say, you have a number of think tanks. I mentioned the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, but there are many others. Learn from this. Get the publications. Uh, attend seminars. Uh, when it comes to individual behavior, try not to drive alone. Try when you drive to bring a friend or a couple of friends with you. Uh, try to be mindful and uh, how you consume electricity. Keep in mind of the peak hours and try to minimize consumption. You know, do your laundry after 10 p.m. or very early in the morning. Don't do it at 8 p.m. and so forth. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Etienne, so much for joining us. Uh, that was. Uh, do you have anything else you would like to add before uh, uh, we sort of conclude? Yeah, one more thing for your graduate for your university uh, student population. Think of a career uh, in the myriad of new companies uh, that are propping up everywhere in the renewable space. You can be an electrician and work on solar panel installation. You can be a mechanical engineer and work on the sophisticated gearboxes uh, that allow uh, the blades from a wind turbine to produce electricity at the, the right speed to, try to drive a generator. Uh, you can be an urban planner. They're going to plan on how a city could harness renewable energy much more effectively. I mean, there are zillions of jobs in the renewable sector. Already in solar, we have over 400,000 jobs in this country. In wind, close to 200,000. Together, that's more than oil, which is 500,000-something, and it's growing fast. So think of a career in this exciting new space, because contrary to what you may hear from certain quarters, the renewable space is extremely job accretive. Jobs are being created in our country every day. Uh, they are lucrative. They are very uh, challenging jobs. But uh, they contribute 
to the necessary progress we have to make to save our planet. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Etienne Defarge. That was a great point. For our listeners, that was Etienne Defarge talking about the UN Climate Change Report. He's the author of Untangling the USA, entrepreneur and former executive, and he would like to hear his debrief of the report and his tips for how us college students can personally do our part to fight climate change. You can check out the podcast that we'll have up later on kcsufm.com. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you, Emily and JD, and thank you to your listeners. All right. Bye. That was Etienne, and this is the Rocky Mountain Review. We will be taking a quick break before we dive into our sports segment not our sports segment, actually, our weather segment, and others. So keep that (laughs) dial locked, only here on 90.5 KCSU, Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am J.D. Layton, one of two news directors here at 90.5 KCSU. I'm joined in studio by the other news director, I'm Emily Moschak. As well as our very own local reporter, Katie Otter. We just had Etienne Defarge, a climate change expert, on the show to talk about the UN report about climate change, something that is very important to the national spectrum today. And along that line, we have our national news for you now. President Trump has changed his stance towards Saudi Arabia following the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, reports Jordan Fabian of The Hill. While the Trump administration was previously trying to forge a positive relationship with the country, punishments are now being placed on Saudi Arabia. These punishments include revoking the visas of 21 of Saudi officials who were allegedly involved with Khashoggi's death. The U.S. is also considering placing sanctions on human rights violators in the country. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that these punishments will not be the last measure the U.S. takes against Saudi Arabia, stating that the United States will not tolerate the type of violent actions that were taken against Khashoggi. Trump's shift in attitude comes after the Saudi account of what happened to Khashoggi was revealed to be inconsistent, along with the Turkish president condemning the Saudis' account and accusing them of planning the, quote, brutal planned murder of Khashoggi. However, although Trump called the Saudi story, quote, the worst cover-up ever, he stressed that he will not completely end relations with the country. The administration is currently awaiting results from the CIA investigation on the case. Every time I hear more about it, I just can't believe it. It's just such a ridiculous thing. It's not even like Khashoggi had anything super bad to say against the 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 the, 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 the prince. It was It was just... Well, I mean, Slight not saying that he deserved it, but he did say things. And in countries that run the way Saudi Arabia does, they kind of take things at very extreme. It was, it was a, it was far. They took it far too personally and ended up killing somebody for it. And it's very unfortunate and very sad to see still happen. It is unfortunate, but I would say I'm not surprised. I don't know after what's all been going on lately. But hopefully something will come of the investigations that are now taking place. Right. The first female Supreme Court justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, has announced that she has been diagnosed with dementia and will withdraw from public life, reports the New York Times. O'Connor, 88, released that she was diagnosed with dementia some time ago, and her doctors believe it is a symptom of Alzheimer's disease. 
Well, the final chapter of my life with dementia may be trying. Nothing has diminished my gratitude and deep appreciation for the countless blessings in my life, O'Connor wrote in a letter to the American people. O'Connor was on the court between the Supreme Court between 1981 and 2005 and acted as an important swing vote during her tenure. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, I am among legions of women endeavoring to follow O'Connor's lead. John J. O'Connor III, Justice O'Connor's husband, died of Alzheimer's disease in 2009, and his diagnosis was believed to be a major factor in her departure from the court. That's just sad. I know. Mm. That is sad. Alzheimer's and dementia are always very hard diseases to deal with. They're, very they're definitely tough. tough. Homemade bombs have been sent to the residence of former President Barack Obama, as well as the Clinton family, the CNN offices, former Attorney General Eric Holder, and current New York Governor Andrew, Andrew Cumio, to name just a few, reports the Washington Post. Something that these targets have in common is that they are Democrats and are consistent targets of conservative politicians. There is an ongoing investigation for the serial mail bomber, and no arrests have been made. The homemade pipe bombs were discovered in the mail when the Secret Service was conducting standard mail screenings. The bombs are reported to be packaged with bubble wrap inside of manila envelopes. In the wake of the potential bomb threats, President Trump, using his favorite response in a time of crisis, told a crowd in Wisconsin during a campaign rally that, quote, we have to unify, reports the New York Times. Investigators are working to uncover forensic clues, such as fingerprints and DNA evidence, to determine who is the sender of the multiple pipe bombs, according to Time. Larry Johnson, who is a former head of investigation for the U.S. Secret Service, says that there is a likely trail of evidence left behind by whomever mailed the bombs, indicating the perpetrator will be found out soon. And uh, it's actually there's 10 people who got bombs sent to them. Uh, it was Obama, Hillary Clinton, a former CIA director, John Brennan, former Attorney General Eric Holder, Representative Maxine Waters, George Soros, uh, Joe Biden, and Robert De Niro. Why Robert De Niro? It's probably the political remark he said, but still. Who knows? Just absolutely, absolutely ridiculous stuff. Truly. Megyn Kelly's NPC show has been canceled following offensive remarks regarding blackface in Halloween costumes, reports Brian Stetler of CNN Business. Kelly made her comments on Tuesday and apologized on her Wednesday morning show, but it appears that was not enough to save her show. Kelly stated it was okay for white people to dress up as black characters when she was growing up and brought up the example of Luanne de Lesseps, a star on The Real Housewives of New York, who dressed up as Diana Ross, stating, I don't know, I felt like who doesn't love Diana Ross? She wants to look like Diana Ross for one day? I don't know how, like, that's that got racist on Halloween, end quote. As of right now, it remains unclear as to if Megyn Kelly has been fired for the comments, but it is very likely NBC will fire her. Not cool stuff. No. I don't know. I feel like I don't think she should go as far as to be fired, though. After making her apology, I think she did say something completely stupid. Right, yeah, but, but I... St- I don't know. I still think it's it's... I don't know. It's un- it's unacceptable to sort of perpetuate that as like a sort of acceptable norm. It is definitely unacceptable, but I feel like the way she brought it up wasn't... It was more of a discussion in which it was brought up, and what she said was wrong. I guess in my opinion, I feel like 
it's how we learn as a country, which is kind of sad that we have to still learn about these things, but we do. And I feel like talking about it is the only way to do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I know everybody here has been waiting for this part of the show because I certainly know I have because I wait for this part of the show. Every show. It's time for the weather. Everybody put on your favorite meteorological hat because it's that time of the show where you learn about what tomorrow's forecast is going to be like. And today was absolutely lovely. I'm not going to I'm not going to give you any uh, feedback on that because you already know that but tomorrow expect more of the same if you like today prepare for tomorrow because it's going to be the sequel and guess you (laughs) me saturday is going to be even nicer Uh. a solid 76 degrees with a high of or a low of 39 all sunny no clouds not one in sight sunday seems to continue the trend with uh not a cloud in sight high of 69 a low of 40 and monday it's going to be pretty good too uh, It's going to be a little cloudy, but a high of 75 and a low of 39. Wow. We're so blessed with great weather here. I I, I know. I know. I want to go explore. Horsetooth, are you playing the ice? (laughs) Yes. Can you explain to our listeners who just tuned in and are probably very scared right now what is happening? So we definitely... Uh, shoved a bunch of microphones deep into the Ross Ice Shelf, and they discovered something in Antarctica. Ooky, in Antarctica, and discovered some ooky spooky stuff going on there. This is what ice sounds like in I Antarctica, did, which is weird. I didn't know ice had noises, and I didn't know ice was terrifying. But now it's the soundtrack for weather. It is. Yes. And speaking of spooky, next Tuesday is the day before Halloween, and we will have a special spooky Halloween episode of The Review for you then. So stay tuned, and we'll also be featuring a debrief of our Border Wars game, which is coming up tomorrow between Wyoming and CSU. Our beloved Rams. So keep that dial locked for a skeleton of Halloween fun. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> and all your spooky news, because that's what we like to deliver here at 90.5 KCSU-FM. This has been the Rocky Mountain Review, and we'd like to thank all of our reporters, Katie Onder, Raven Culler, Mia Sawaya, as well as you, Emily. We thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you, J.D., and our lovely interviewees, Etienne Defarge and Camille Dungy, for coming on the show today. If you missed any part of the show and would like to hear it later, we'll have it up tomorrow on kcsufm.com.